This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Hey, it's 2019, and we've already put out two episodes. This is our third. We're on a roll, really, aren't we? Yeah, so many interesting people to speak to. And Scott Mitchell, today's guest, is no different. Scott is the Rev Yoshitaka Tamai Professor of Jodo Shinshu Buddhist Studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. And he's the author of Buddhism in America, Global Religion, Local Context, published back in 2016. Scott and I have a fun conversation. This is in spite of me having the flu and high temperature. I haven't had a high temperature, that is fever, for 10 odd years. I'm one of those weird people that never gets it. And I must say, I'm far more sympathetic to those who do now. God, it's awful. Well, I managed to hold it together for the conversation and I'm glad I did because Scott's uh, a great conversationist and a lot of fun. I'm also gonna make a quick confession. I actually listened to an interview with Scott done for the New Books in Buddhism podcast and I found it rather boring. And I was kind of, well, I wasn't feeling great about the conversation before it started. I didn't know Scott at all, but it just sounded rather, well, academic. Now, of course, we're in an academic cycle. We're talking with academics. But as you've noticed, most of them, if you get them into conversation, they're not dry and boring at all. And I'm glad to say that Scott wasn't either. He's also a bit younger than some of our previous guests, closer to my own age, perhaps. And he certainly had the feel of a, a Generation Xer. Lots of humour, lots of playfulness, two qualities I love very much, and I hope you enjoy too. And they certainly come out in the conversation we have today. As per usual, we span quite a wide range of topics, starting with American Buddhism going global, bringing in the European context too. We look at the influence of Goenka, the trade between Buddhisms in different parts of the world, and really, well, I would suggest that a lot of the conversation is kind of destabilizing some of the academic norms around the ideas of modernity and the flow of influence from one place to another. Scott is very passionate about the work he does, that's very clear from the conversation, and he's also thinking in different ways, in divergent ways, about the material he's engaging with. And this makes, again, for a great conversation. I think you could probably slot Scott into a tripartite conversation I have with three different academics, as they all seem to be connected in a number of divergent ways. Angleig will be coming on soon, as will David McMahon. And they're all talking about, well, slightly similar areas. They're all studying contemporary Buddhism, what's happening today. And it's all fascinating, in my view, and it should be fascinating for you, too. Now, music for this episode is 
well I almost want to call it esoteric. It's by a group called Flying Saucer Attack. Kind of a ridiculous name, but there it is. This is a group from Bristol of course, and the genre of music they engage in is varied. I wanted to call it sort of psychedelic mystery ambient. But if you look on the website, you get a whole range of definitions. Post-rock, space rock, shoegazing, experimental rock, lo-fi, neo-psychedelia. Oh my god, that's a lot, isn't it? It's going to be, for some of you, a rather enjoyable listen. For others, it won't be. Anyway, the music's always at the end. You can do with it what you will. Well, that's all from me. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Scott. Stay tuned to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today we're speaking with Scott Mitchell. Thank you for giving up your time today, Scott. How how are things there in Berkeley? Uh, things are they're rather stormy, actually, <laughs> um, but otherwise they're they're quite nice. Great, great. So look, let's dive into this this topic of, of Buddhism in America, and then perhaps we'll we'll manage to bridge to some degree to looking at Buddhism more globally. So um, many folks who will be familiar with you will have heard of your book on American Buddhism, uh, which was published back in 2016, if I remember correctly, Buddhism in America, Global Religion and Local Context. And that will be the basis for some of our conversation today. But I'd like to start with you, really. Um, why did you decide to to study American Buddhism specifically and what inspired you to choose this as a central area of your research? Um, well, I, uh, I actually went to graduate school on this naive assumption that I would be interested in doing uh, sort of interreligious work. Um, but it, the very first semester of my, my graduate um, experience, I realized that wasn't um, really what, what was was interesting me um and i happened to take a course on um on on buddhism in the west um which really opened my eyes to the i think the long history of the interaction between buddhism and western cultures um which i don't up to that point wasn't really aware of um both generally speaking in terms of um you know enlightenment era philosophers in europe and, and the translation of texts and whatnot but also more um uh, more recent historical events in uh, North America. Uh, so from that that point of view, it was just um, the the history uh, the history nerd in me just became interested in um, sort of charting that history. Um, and the second part that was of interest to me was that I was also becoming affiliated with or um, uh, familiar with uh, the uh, the Buddhist Churches of America, which um, is a, a school of Japanese Buddhism that was established in the U.S. in the late 1800s. And so there was this whole other history that many people just don't know about of um, of folks practicing Buddhism in the United. States. Um, a lot of folks just focus on, you know, the 1960s up to the present. And, you know, there's a good 70 years of history before that, that um, just is endlessly fascinating to me. So uh, that was that was sort of my entree into the field. <clears throat> mm, mm. Okay. So do you feel like you were doing some justice then to this sort of ignored history in American Buddhism? Um, uh, a younger version of me, sure, would have used the word justice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but I think fundamentally it's just a matter of, um, you know, being an, uh, an intellectual and geeking out on intellectual history. Okay. Um, you know, I, you know, there definitely is, I think, um, a, a way in which, 
the sort of subfield of American Buddhism, but also Buddhist studies more generally um, locates, uh, uh, as Natalie Cooley would say, the, the proper field site um, for the work, right? Buddhism is something that happened, uh, or I should say, you know, real Buddhism, quote unquote, is something that happened in the past in Asia. Mm. Um, and if it's not in the past and in Asia, then it's just not worth um, academic time, so to speak. Um, and so arguing against that certainly, um, informed a lot of my, uh, doctoral research, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, doing, you know, post-colonial theory and, you know, sort of looking at the history of Buddhist studies as a field and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Now listeners should know that I've sent you a few questions beforehand, but as I'm tend to do, as the conversation evolves, I like to slip in a few unexpected questions. And the one that comes to mind now is, uh, just thinking about what you had to say is, are you familiar with the, the work of, uh, Charles as Prebish? who mm -hmm. came on as a guest a while back and was talking about a theory that he'd originally given form to, this idea of, of different forms of American Buddhism. Um, how, how do you view his work now? And is it, was it a, an influence for you in, in your own research and study? Well, sure. I mean, you know, Pribus's work is he's sort of foundational to this, this subfield. You can't, um, you can't not be in conversation with that work. Mm. Um, so, you know, and I think that I think it's important. I, I think one of the one of the major contributions that his work made was sort of opening the door, so to speak. Um, he has he has the story that he once told me that, um, you know, the first time he wanted to do research on American Buddhism was back in the um, uh, early 70s. And he wrote up this research grant and he submitted it to whoever, you know, the foundation that was going to give the money. Um, and the response was, there's no such thing as American Buddhism. Um, mm. And so he went back to his office or whatever and, and changed the title of the, the proposal from American Buddhism to new religious movements and then got the money. Mm. Um, so I think that speaks to the way in which the field in the 1970s was just inherently disinterested in um, the, sub the, the, the subject itself and didn't even see it as, um, as a thing, right? Um, and his tenacity, Prabhupada's tenacity of, of, of following this research um, allowed for, you know, latter generations such as myself to come along and, and make our own contribution. So um, from that from that point of view, I think it's, it's tremendously valuable to, um, you know, to, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of perennially interested in is um, academia as its own social institution and the way in which institutions sort of perpetuate themselves, right? The way in which communities construct themselves. And I think that many, many people in academia and outside of academia don't don't take that for don't don't really see that if that makes any sense yeah it does um and i always like to sort of shine light on oh the reason why we're doing this research is because so and so got funding <laughs> right yes um which oftentimes sets the sets the terms for the debate mm -hmm. um so i think being aware of the way in which this field is formed as a as a social institution and and what that means and and how research becomes possible because of the individual work of people um i think just needs to be stated every once in a while um that's 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 the soapbox my first soapbox for today <laughs> <laughs> well it's a good one and, and i'd agree with you wholly and i think it's great to to hear you say that and i, mean, I think one of the interesting things about this the current climate we live in is that the increasing access or the the loss of division in a sense between the professional fields and the general public has actually made it more possible for people to engage with academics mm -hmm. and hear their views and and for both, you know, practitioners to learn from academics more directly, but also mm. perhaps for academics to develop more of the sense that you've just described of the fact that, you know, the academic tradition can be quite insular if it's not too careful. Yeah. 
definitely. Yeah. And, and I think uh, a consequence of that is the sort of um, lack of self-awareness on the part of academics that our work impacts living communities, right? That what we do matters for the, the persons that we study, the traditions that we study. Um, I think many academics just want to pretend that's not true. <laughs> Which is strange to me. I mean, <laughs> talk, talk about uh, naive. <laughs> sure. But, you know, if you, again, if you look at the history, you know, historically, if Buddhism, if Buddhist studies is concerned, if Buddhist studies takes as a, as a given that Buddhism is something that happened in the past in Asia, right, right. then then we're basically, you know, doing, you know, historical archaeology or something. And yeah. our work might have intellectual abstract interest to people in the present, but it's not really about people in the present, right? Okay. okay. Um, so that that part of the, the culture of Buddhist studies, I think, lingers up to the present, even though over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, the field has really expanded to go beyond philology or history and to include anthropology or sociology and other um, other methods and disciplines that have a direct impact on um, on on living persons, right? Yeah. Um, but even even apart from that, you know, if you're a philologist and you translate the Lotus Sutra, who do you think is going to read that translation? <laughs> 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 you know, I, you know, lots of, of practicing Buddhists know know these scholars by by the fact that they translated the the books that they're reading you know um the the sutras so there's there's definitely a relationship that we have as scholars even if we're not practicing buddhists even if we're completely detached in some way from a community our work still is as you say is getting out there in some way um whether directly through a blog or through you know popular buddhist magazines or through you know geeky translations of sutras that we think nobody's going to read. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting, and that kind of justifies really the the original point you made about this the idea of Buddhism being frozen off in the past someplace. But certainly, your work is not taking that direction. Um, the blurb for your text says that Buddhism in America provides the most comprehensive and up to date survey of the diverse landscape of U.S. Buddhist traditions. Now. Although it was published back in 2016, I assumed you finished the text quite a bit before that. And, yeah, yeah. You know, although you, <laughs> and, you know, we live in this accelerated age, you know, where everything's happening so fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yeah, you know, the book came out right yeah. right when, when Trump was winning the election, and I was like, oh, well. <laughs> oh, God, that's that then. <laughs> can, I, can I go back and do a do-over? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, oh. yeah, definitely an accelerated age, and it's hard to study contemporary phenomena, contemporary yeah. religion, because things just change, um, change so fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it, I mean, perhaps the thing that saves us, though, is the idea that so many more things are in dialogue with each other. And um, I will be speaking to Anne Gleig soon, and she's written a book that's coming out in February on American Dharma, which uh, mm -hmm. certainly mentions your work and and uh, is indebted to it to some degree. So it's all it's all interesting. But I mean, the question I kind of have really is, you know, what what are some of the issues that you see right now, to bring us back to the present, that are currently surrounding the American Buddhist scene, that perhaps weren't fully understood or developed or mentioned in your your text? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that's it's a really interesting question. Um, uh, I've been thinking about it for the last uh, few weeks. I think that one of the one of the things that that I come back to is the 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 sheer diversity of buddhisms in the united states there's there's so there's so much going on um that what seems like a hot topic i think really very much depends on where you put your attention mm. um and what part of the scene you're looking at 
um, when I talk to people, you know, I, I'll give a guest lecture somewhere and someone will say, Hey, have you heard about so-and-so? And I'm like, I'm like, no, I haven't. <laughs> and there's that part of me that feels a little insecure, but then I also just remember that, you know, there's, there's a lot going on and I just haven't put my attention onto that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to answer that question because depending on where you're putting your focus, I think you're going to get different answers. Um, so for example, um, I think that, uh, the, you know, recently, um, uh, all of the sexual scandals have been getting a lot of press, right? Yeah. Um, rightly deservedly. So, mm-hmm. um, and that seems to be an issue that is, um, crossing a lot of different, um, different traditions, different, um, uh, lineages, so to speak. Um, cause it's not just, you know, these guys or those guys, but it's, you know, lots of different communities. Um, so that seems to be obviously a rather large, important issue. Um, I, I ironically, it's also something that's been going on for 40 years. So <laughs> again, right. my background in history is always helpful. It's like, Oh yeah, this, this again. <laughs> uh, but you know that, so that seems like a really important issue. Uh, you know, some communities might not be affected by that and might be less interested, um, in sort of addressing the issue. Um, I think another interesting aspect of that though, would be to look at the, the types of communities where this is coming up and how it gets played in the media and, and who's talking about it and sort of bringing in different discourses. Um, you know, a lot of the communities that are getting a lot of the attention happen to be, um, so-called convert communities that are predominantly, um, white Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, this is not to say that this isn't happening in other communities, but it would be interesting to see the way in which communities where it's not happening, if people just think, oh, well, that's that's happening to those those Buddhists and it's not really affecting us and we can sort of ignore it um, without doing any sort of self um, evaluation or, or recognizing how these patterns are, are really not um, unique to any one particular tradition, if that makes any sense. Um, so I think that, you know, sometimes depending on where you're putting your focus, you might just sort of think things aren't actually important to you, but maybe, maybe they are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that's, um, obviously a hot topic, um, right now. I think that to be a bit more, um, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is a bit more abstract, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. w- one of the things I think hasn't gotten, um, enough widespread attention is, uh, this also goes back to Richard Payne's work, um, uh, and, and, uh, sort of conversations about economics and conversations about, um, uh, economic systems in which Buddhism is, is embedded. I think this is an important, um, an important topic because, um, Buddhism always exists in particular historical, cultural, you know, environmental contexts. Um, and it, it responds to those contexts and it's hard not to talk about Buddhism in the contemporary world without taking into consideration, you know, late capitalism and globalization and all of these larger things that aren't really about Buddhism, but that Buddhism necessarily responds to, um, you know, Richard's work, I think is, um, certainly he's doing some of this stuff and he's been working with some other scholars, um, uh, you know, again, people who are usually trained in anthropology or ethnography who are, are just looking at the way Buddhism is developing in the world um, on the ground um, uh, in response to changing economic systems hmm. that I would love to see get more press. So I'm going to push for that. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. Well, it, it's a topic that's come up with almost all of our past guests in the last 12 months is the topic of neoliberalism and, and capitalism more generally. So we're talking about it. So that's something, oh, I guess. Good. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, it's um, I mean, one of the things we picked up on is, which has come from various influences, is just the fact that you know the whole sort of the mode of practice that people engage in is is infiltrated you know, very deeply by the norms, the social and economic norms that surround mm. them. And I think one of the myths that's been pushed by a lot of Buddhists, and I, I think I did this myself at one point in the past, was that somehow you could avoid that or escape it just by going off on retreat or sitting on your right. meditation cushion, which, you know, in hindsight is ob obviously absurd. But for a moment, it seemed like a, a viable option. <laughs> sure, sure. Really not, right? <laughs> I don't know if you ever engage in that kind of belief yourself. I imagine not being an academic, but I think a lot of folks have. Oh yeah, definitely. I think you know the the urge to you know the urge to escape from the world is certainly part of the reason why people engage in any religious practice, right? Um, mm. You know, I think that what religion often argues implicitly is that the world is a confusing and changing place, but we have access to some eternal transcendental truth. Yeah. So if you come and do what we're telling you to do, you'll get away from the chaos of, of everyday changing life, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's meditation or, or yoga or anything really. Um, so yeah, I, I totally get that impulse. Um, you know, I, I would also just note that, you know, the, the impulse, the, the, the ability to act on that impulse implies that you have the leisure time to do it, right? <laughs> well, is that too? Yeah. <laughs> which, which is another way in which Buddhism is implicated in, um, in its particular current cultural or historical, uh, I'm sorry, uh, ecological context, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the people who can go off and do a meditation retreat are the people who have um, leisure time, quite frankly, you know, if you're not worried about um, – uh, if you're not working three jobs to support your kids because you're a single parent, then you know you you can go and do a, a ten day silent retreat somewhere, <laughs> which is part of the economic reality that Buddhism is in. And so, you know that there's there's that connection, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And there's the issue that I, I think you you mentioned in one of your articles for Tricycle, uh, if I remember, or was it Lion's Roar? I think it was Lion's Roar actually, in which the issue comes up as it so often does, or, or perhaps not quite enough, judging by what you've just said, on the fact that so many retreats, um, you know, the prices as well, I mean, they're just not accessible for anybody who's mm -hmm. not, you know, at the upper ends of the middle class or higher. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue which, although has been addressed to some small degree by some of the the, the larger Buddhist institutions in the West, um, and I'm, I'm thinking along about primarily the convert communities here, it tends to be what, a sort of allowing uh, a certain number of spaces to be available for the poor. But as you've just rightly indicated, it's not just money, is it? It's about time. Yeah, right. It's about the struggle of existence and mm -hmm. whether those things are compatible. But uh, yeah, I, um, I mean, there's a question I have about Goenka, which I think in a sense is, is one kind of response to that economic issue. But just before we get there, I mean, you mentioned the issue of the economy and capitalism more broadly. And of course, these issues are being experienced by Buddhists globally. Um, I wanted to bridge a little bit to Europe, if you don't mind. So I think the next question I'll go to is this one. What do you see as the relationship between changes and innovations in American Buddhism and their spread or impact both on Europe and the rest of the globe? 
Uh, yeah, that's a really hard question. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, you know, I think, and and this might just be my feelings. You know, post twenty sixteen, um, my my sense is is that there's this sort of um, automatic assumption that that America has had this outside influence on the rest of the world, mm-hmm. um, and and I really, I find myself more and more interested in in sort of doing more reflection and research on that to, to really sort of I, to identify where some of these flows are coming from, um, where some of the directions of influence are coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, I think obviously, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are, there are teachers in the United States, um, Buddhist teachers in the United States who, uh, became popular here and then became wildly popular in other parts of the world. Um, but I, I wonder if the reverse is also not true, right? That there's been influence from outside of the United States that um, has affected us more than um, Americans are usually um, ready to see. Um, I think that Americans generally see ourselves as, you know, the <laughs> the creators of culture, right? Um, <laughs> well, you, you did for a while. I don't know. I don't know if that's that's going to yeah, like I said, pass anymore in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, but but not but not just um, in terms of uh, um, uh, uh, specific direction or a specific person or a specific idea, but sort of just broader cultural trends. Um, you know, if we if we assume that, for example, the um, the widespread popularization of, of mindfulness meditation is the result of sort of the displacement of uh, sort of a you know take a sociological um, secularization theory, which I'll just sort of put out there and say I'm not buying into it entirely, but just for the sake of argument, <laughs> you know, that secular institutions have displaced a traditional um, religious institutions. And then in that displacement, um, uh, practices that used to be traditionally religious have become um, repurposed or taken over by uh, the systems of of the, the modern secular state, right? Um, so that meditation used to be a religious thing, but people still need it. So now you, you can get it at your hospital with healthcare, right? Um, this is a, an argument that I think Stephen Batchelor sort of alludes to in his um, his work on secularization. Right. Yeah. Um, and so from that point of view, you know, secularization is, is sort of happening everywhere in the developing or developed world. Is that influence coming from America to Europe or is it sort of happening in parallel, if that makes sense, right? So that's that's sort of the, the area that I want to explore and sort of just be open to letting go of this um, American egocentric idea that, that we're the progenitors of all of these ideas and we're doing all the innovative stuff when when really we're probably receiving a lot more of it. You know, I just mentioned Stephen Patchett, for example, he's not American <laughs> and he's doing a lot of the most, um, a lot of this work, right? He's doing a lot of the, the popularization of a particular understanding of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, which which way is this influence really going or is it more that we're all just sort of um, bound up in these larger um, globalized flows of late capitalism and other, you know, other theories that, um, uh, you know, that I like to think about <laughs> um, and things just sort of get messy at that point. Right. Um, yeah. So. I, that's kind of that's kind of where I, where I go, and then um, you know I you know I have uh, I have lots of friends who do work in other parts of the of the world, and it's just always interesting to see oh the field work you're doing in in in, in Latka or in Southeast Asia or Thailand or whatnot you know what Buddhists are doing there is is you know really not that dissimilar from what's going on in other parts of the world, and it seems to be again responses to larger social cultural economic forces. 
um, and there's some relationship to the West, quote unquote. But how, what that relationship is, I think, is is, is way more complicated than a simple um, sort of linear direction. Um, you know, I, you know. The United States is, is is certainly no longer the center of, of global culture <laughs> over the last couple of years, but I, I really question whether or not we always were, you know, um, or if it's just sort of an anomaly, <laughs> the post World yeah. War II anomaly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say, but I, I think there are a couple of words you picked up on there. One of them is certainly complexity. That seems to be another feature of our time, right? And I think that's, yeah. um, that's yeah. visible in all corners, whether professional or, or non-professional. But um, I, I just wanted to say one point about the, you know, the secularization hypothesis. I, I can't help but think sometimes when I hear it you know, spoken about again that it, it seems to contain a high degree of wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah. think, you know what I mean? And I think uh -huh, that uh -huh. comes out in some of the work of those who still promote it. You know, I don't want to say religiously because. <laughs> oh, oh no, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> That's just, you know, too cheap a shot to take, I think. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a sense mm -hmm. as well that that assumption blinds a lot of folks to the sorts of complexities that you're picking up on. Yeah. And yeah. I think that talking about like reverse directions, um, the secularization of mindfulness, I, I would suspect. It almost seems obvious, but, you know, I, I don't know if I can say that, that in having large numbers of folks engage in something like mindfulness outside of a religious spiritual context will most likely inspire quite a few of them to start exploring the religious spiritual world <laughs> in a way that they probably wouldn't have thought about doing beforehand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's this kind of relational exchange that's constantly going on, right? And again, I think that, that that's a metaphor that works better in the age we live in, where there's this hyper-connection you know, in all areas of life, basically. Yeah, you know, and I would also add that I think this also sort of complicates the way that we think about the secular versus the religious. You know, yeah. even even that dichotomy presumes that there's this sort of um, clearly defined category of thing called religion and a clearly defined category of thing called the secular. Yeah. Um, and I think that what most people who are doing work, um, or you know, more um, immediate work in that in that area, would say that, that those lines are really not that clear. Um, you know, you look at um, uh, in the United States, we have this whole new category of the religious nuns, right? People who are spiritual but not religious. Yep. You know, what does that what does that mean? <laughs> um, how do how do those folks practice spirituality? How do they practice religion? How do they identify on a subjective level their own um, their own experiences? All that kind of stuff, um, which doesn't fit neatly into that sort of binary of of either or, right? And, and in my view, I think that's actually more the norm of human history, right? That, mo that over, his over human history, more often than not, life has been complicated and messy. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we come along and as academics or scholars or whatnot and try to put things into categories that I don't think necessarily line up with um, sort of lived reality. Um, you know, there's that old stereotype of um, traditional Chinese religious life that everybody um, was three religions at once, right? Um, uh, you know, they were Taoist, Confucian, and, and Buddhist. Um, and the, the the sort of the trope or the joke or whatever is that if you're if you're um, sick, you go see a Taoist to get medicine. If you need a funeral, you go to a Buddhist. And if you want to know how to run a business, you talk to the Confucians, um, <laughs> which is you know trite and 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 not reflective of reality i'm sure but there's also a way in which i think that that's that's true for most of us right that most of us um 
you know, we might be religious in some sense, but we only go to religion for a, a particular set of reasons. And then, you know, the next day we go see our chiropractor and the next day we go, you know, to our law office or whatever, right? We have these distinct worlds that we live in that have some overlap to them, obviously, but they serve some um, practical function in our lives. And, and all of that uh, constitutes our sort of uh, our identities and our totality um, to sort of, you know, pigeonhole people or, or groups into these either or dichotomies, I think, um, betrays that complexity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. That makes sense. And I think as well, this, this kind of view challenges the, the idea of the self within the age of reason, you know, which is so easily mm -hmm. quantifiable, mm -hmm. and definable, and, you know, easily able to be put into a box, which, of course, in, an, in a complex age in which we have so much access to knowledge, that kind of simplistic idea is undermined. But I'd like to um, talk about one person who perhaps matches up with a point you made uh, previously about influence, and that's uh, S.N. Goenka. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, he was not American or European, uh, and he would, but he was clearly influenced by developments in Western Buddhism. And if we look at Europe, I mean, there, there are Goenka retreat centers everywhere. Uh, where I'm based in Italy, there are three. Uh, next door, we've got Slovenia that's got one too. I mean, they're everywhere, and they're certainly providing you know, uh, access to retreats for free to anybody, regardless of their beliefs or practices. I've also read that um, there has been a revival in interest in practicing meditation in many Asian countries, and Goenka seems to be part of that, that shift. Um, can you speak to that, uh, that reverse flow of influence and the impact our conception of meditation and prioritization of it in the West has had in Asian countries? Um, yeah, actually, I would like to kind of respond and, and push back a little bit on this idea of the reverse influence. Um, I think okay. that um, I think this is also something that we should uh, sort of interrogate and, and do more research and think more critically about, um, you know. Goenka, of course, learned meditation from Burmese uh, teachers, right? And the Burmese teachers um, were doing uh, were doing this work in the um, late 19th, early 20th century, and they were also in conversation with um, uh, Thai Buddhist revival movements happening at the same time, right? The Thai, particularly the Thai forest tradition. Um, so there's there's sort of a nexus of of events happening in in that part of the world toward the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, and you know later on, folks like Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and others, you know, come to Southeast Asia and South Asia and learn these meditation uh, uh, techniques and and take them back to the United States and they become wildly popular. But I, I don't think that it's right to to think that um, that they became popular in the, in the U.S. and then were sent back to Asia. Because that implies that all of that work that was being done 50 years before, you know, these white American hippies show up, um, <laughs> forgive me, <laughs> that all of this work was being done um, for for them, right? Um, right. Goenka and uh, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw and Ledi Sayadaw, these guys are popularizing um, uh, meditation for, for lay people in Asia, right? They're doing it for Asians. So that implies that the conditions were right at, at a certain point in history for, uh, for lay, lay Buddhists to start doing meditation um, well before they, the, 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 the popularization of that happened in the United States. Um, the history of Burma, of course, is really, and, and Myanmar, of course, is really um, complicated <laughs> and tragic. Um, but, you know, at the end, at the, the sort of 
the the decline of colonialism there there was that that brief moment of time um when the um uh Ubakin and the new uh he was the the king or emperor i can't remember who was uh, president prime minister <laughs> sorry my my history is failing me here um okay. but I can't there was a, there was sorry <laughs> well there was a brief moment of time you know after the british leave before the military junta took over the country right, right. yeah where the country was relatively stable and that is the moment when um when uh the sayadas and whatnot come along and start um, popularizing meditation and they're doing it you know no doubt for the same reason that it's it's become popular here right because there's enough of a, a stable middle class who has the time to engage in religious pursuits and ubakin of course is using um, this sort of buddhist revivalist stuff to help create a national identity around buddhism and, and so on right so all of this stuff is happening not um, not to popularize meditation in the west but to popularize meditation to popularize buddhism more generally in Asia. So, um, and then, you know, the cornfields and whoever come over and, and learn it and, and bring it back to the United States. So, and then that gets, gets sent back. Right. So there's a sort of, um, circular flow, I think mm -hmm. of things going on that I yeah. think is, is worth, is worth really interrogating. Um, uh, not to say that, um, the, the population that, you know, what, what folks in the West have done hasn't sort of gone back to the, to, to Asia in some form. But I think that there was something there to begin with that predates that sort of coming back, if that makes any sense. And, 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 you know, by, by, by what should be obvious from my stumble over, um, whether Ubakin is the prime minister, or the president, this is clearly not <laughs> my primary area of expertise, which is why <laughs> I, I started this conversation by saying, I think that we should we should um, really explore these historical um, these historical this historic this history. Um, you know, it was interesting doing the research for my book because I had to you know I had to go and do a lot of research for this this massive project on Buddhism in America and um, learned a lot in the process and um, sent chapters to friends and colleagues who were experts in different parts of the Buddhist world and they would respond with some of these stories and it was and it was really eye opening to to recognize that. Um, there has been this long history of back and forth between Asia and the West in, in lots of different um, small and large ways um, that I think, again, really um, complicates the, the sort of linear progression of Buddhist uh, modern Buddhist history, right, that, mm -hmm. that these things happened here and then they went there and then they went there. Um, it's, it's more like everyone's going everywhere. <laughs> um, and, and that to me is just, is just really – really endlessly fascinating <laughs> um yeah. just as as an historical uh uh fact it's just sort of interesting to to, to think about these stories and 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 say oh okay so goenka is learning from these teachers and then you know he takes this burmese stuff and he goes to india and he tries to revive buddhism in india and, and what's that about and how does that work and then you know along comes uh you know surya das or um you know these other these other folks and then they they take it back to america and then you know inc incidentally you know um when the um, uh, uh, Vipassana movement, the insight meditation movement takes off in the United States, you know, uh, they're inviting these Burmese teachers to give talks. And the Burmese teachers are, are in the United States, not only to go hang out at Spirit Rock with Jack Cornfield, but also to help establish Burmese uh, temples in California. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of interesting things that are that are happening that um, that, again, just make things really complicated and, and fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because some of that I certainly wasn't aware of it. But it also, so there's also two things I hear in what you were saying. One of them is that uh, it sort of questions agency in this, you know, Western American Buddhist project, right? And it yeah. removes the idea that, uh, I mean, some of the, the more critical reading of, of, of Buddhist modernity is fascinating to me. But certainly one thing it does do is sometimes marginalizes these um, Asian voices so that they end up being sort of puppets for whatever it is, uh, the wave of modernity or the mm. consequences of uh, invasion yeah. by British forces or whatever. And what you're saying rightly is that actually they're far more active. Yeah. And, you know, they're not just puppets. They're not just a production of a Western historical moment, right? Right, right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you can't you can't get away from the, the influence of colonialism, obviously, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the, the process of becoming a modern nation state for most of the world is the result of the class of colonialism. So there's, there's certainly, that's important. Um, but we also have to be attentive to the unique and specific ways in which modern national identities are formed or subjectivities are formed, um, in that space that's opened up in the decolonial period, right? So what happens in Burma after the British leave is very, very different from what happens in Thailand, which was never directly colonized, right? So the process of creating a national Thai identity also centered around Buddhism um, happens in a distinct way, um, in some ways in response to colonialism, but in some ways in response to colonialism from a distance. Mm -hmm. um, we can also see a parallel with Japan, right, where um, following the Meiji Restoration, also Japan is never directly colonized, but it's, it's impossible to see the history of modern Japan without understanding it as very much a response to the threat of colonialism, right? Very much a, a response to, um, oh, the world is modernized. Let's send everybody to European universities to learn about the modern world, and then we'll create a new national identity, um, a national, a national, um, a nationalist Japanese identity. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, but again. You know, there's definitely agency on the part of, of these folks, and there's um, also v very local specificity. You know, how these things develop is very different. Um, and, you know, all this stuff is happening at the same time. Buddhism's coming to the United States, so you have to be aware of that, too, when talking about the development of American Buddhism. Um, you know, uh, the, the post-1960s uh, era, when there's a, a rise in the popularity of Buddhism, is... Um, is very much tied to the, the collapse of, of um, colonial empires in, in Asia, um, but also the ability for you know young Americans to travel in Asia is also um, a, a factor, right? Um, Jack Kornfield's able to go to Thailand and Burma because of the Peace Corps. Uh. So you know, and what's the Peace Corps, right? <laughs> the Peace Corps is part of an American um, interventionist program to sort of spread American uh, democratic idealism uh -huh. in the early 1960s, right? Um, but let's a cynical way of saying it, but still. <laughs> oh, but he's also partially true. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is sort of, uh, you know, I, I sort of, in a, in a general sense, I see my, my scholarship as sort of bridging historical studies with more contemporary stuff. And the, um, the contemporary scene, I think we have to understand the way in which Buddhism is the social institution, a uh, religious institution that's embedded within larger cultural contexts. And to, to, as we were saying before, to pretend that you can just sort of escape to your meditation cushion 
um, ignores the way in which the the ability for you to do that is contingent upon these larger cultural forces. You know, you can't go to your meditation cushion if you don't live in a context where you can get a meditation cushion, <laughs> which implies, you know, certain ideas about economics, about leisure time, about class, about status, about whatever else, right? Mm. Um, and, and the historical context, you know, again, if it wasn't for the Peace Corps, we might not have Jack Kornfield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all fascinating. And, and these are sort of, you know, endless roads that you can go down, of course. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. clear in the way you're talking about your interests here and the passion you have for this topic. Um, well, talking about empires, because, you know, well, I know a lot of Americans don't like to admit it, but America was certainly the empire of the last century. Uh, will China become the next one in this one? Well, I, I hope not, but certainly it's becoming a, a genuine superpower. And with an apparent decline in the U.S. politically in its role as the once leading superpower, I wonder mm -hmm. what you see as the possible or potential impact on Buddhism globally as China continues its spread of influence through its Belt and Road project, mm -hmm. which many might know as the Silk Road expansionist project. Yeah, you know, um, I wish I knew more about that. <laughs> um, but I, I do, uh, yeah, it's hard not to see how China is um, going to have a much larger influence over the Buddhist world um, uh, in the next in the next both short and near term, um, mm. sorry, near and long term. Um, you know, I have a colleague, uh, Courtney Bruns, who does work on um, contemporary China, and she's done a lot of interesting work on um, the Chinese gray market, um, where a lot of Buddhist institutions sort of inhabit, um, where they're able to... Um, you know, there's always these building projects, right? They, uh, the across Asia, but uh, particularly in China, where they build these uh, enormous statues, right? They, I, like everyone's trying to build the biggest statue of the Buddha they possibly can. <laughs> That's an odd. Uh, Does it end up becoming a phallic symbol? I'm sorry to say it, but only men come up with these daft ideas, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Let's take the biggest thing we can do. Anyway. Exactly. Just stick it right out there. <laughs> uh, but there's this this whole interesting sort of network of economies that work around these places, you know, in China, there, you know, there's still this belief that that Buddhism is is not part of the economy, right? That, it, that right, monks okay. can't, you know, that the, they're supposed to be monks, you know, they're not supposed to be pure, whatever. Um, and so, the, but these sort of these tourist industries surround these sites, right? You can go to these um, these massive statues, and um, and and uh, uh, there's all this this tourism that's happening around them, and then the the tourist groups who have some quasi relationship to the Buddhist organizations are being traded on the Chinese stock market and all of these things, oh, wow. um, which is, which is really fascinating. Right. And so it's hard not to see how just at the, 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 the level of scale in terms of how much money we're talking about, that these won't inevitably have a huge impact beyond, um, beyond China, obviously, um, uh, from, a sort of cultural anthropology point of view, one of the interesting things in Courtney Brunson's work is where she talks about the way in which these um, tourist enterprises are also engaged in a sort of um, Buddhist re-education almost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in mainland China, you know, because of the Cultural Revolution, Buddhism was um, really um, suppressed uh, and persecuted. And so there's a whole generation of, of Chinese folks who don't really know that much about Buddhism. And so if you take a ferry ride out to, you know, one of 
these islands with these gigantic statues on it. Um, on the ferry, you'll have all of these little videos being played that will explain to you what you're supposed to do when you get there and explain the symbolism and, exp- and basically, you know, Buddhism 101, right? Um, so it's sort of an interesting thing to think about the way in which um, economics and tourism and um, and all of this stuff is sort of intertwined with the education of, of, of Buddhism, how Buddhism gets taught to people, how people learn about Buddhism within this context of, you know, uh, tourism <laughs> and giant statues. Um, and and then if you if you follow that thread, then you know obviously then you get into the um, the entanglements that China has with other parts of Asia. You know a, a lot of what's going on in Burma. This is really outside of my area of expertise. My understanding is a lot of it has to do with uh, um, the Chinese influence in Burma in terms of um, uh, natural resources, right? So China has a, a um, both a cultural and an economic. Um, uh, you know, reason for wanting to be involved in other parts of, of, of Asia. And, you know, I think that religion obviously gets tied up with this, right? Buddhism gets tied up. If you're going to create a, a national identity, you know, that, that can be formed in a lot of different ways. And religion oft, often plays a part in that, right? Um, you know, it's clearly obvious what's going on in, in the United States. The United States has long been called a white Christian country, right? So there's a intersection between um, race and, and religion, right? We're a Christian nation. And what does that mean? And so our identity as Americans gets sort of bound up with that much like it does in, in Burma or um, modern Japan or, or other places, right? Where to be a member of this country is to be a particular religion. So, it will be really interesting to see how this plays out in China because they're not supposed to have religion, right? It's a, there's no state religion, um, state atheism really. So how does, how does Buddhism get, um, co-opted in that? Uh And I I would also be interested to, um, I think David McMahon has done some work on the way in which Buddhism gets, um, gets, uh, gets played up in all of this with, uh, what's happening in Tibet. Right. Um, and the way, um, and I've heard from other, some other folks too about similar issues where, um, in, in not the Tibet proper, but in areas, uh, uh, where Buddhism had a strong influence um, among ethnic minorities in China, there's this way in which Buddhism becomes performative. It's like um, tourists will go to this part to see the traditional Tibetan culture or something, mm-hmm. um, which very much parallels um, American uh, attitudes toward um, Native Americans, and whatnot. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's complicated. And right. I, that's I, an interesting link I hadn't thought about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I don't know if I answered that question. I feel like I sort of went in <laughs> a very well, different I, direction. <laughs> I, I knew I'd thrown a question at you that you didn't necessarily have all the knowledge in the world about. So I'm quite happy with whatever you have to say, really. <laughs> but, you know, it got me thinking about a couple of things. I mean, the, the one thing that's perhaps been forgotten in the last decade or two is the plight of Tibet. It's kind of yeah. to the sidelines, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the one thing that's happening with China – in a sense, and it's more aggressive push forwards is that it, it kind of feels like it has the right to determine, you know, what things are or are not. Mm. Oh, I yeah. wonder to what degree, you know, China is basically determining what will, what Buddhism will be allowed to be in the rest of the century, especially if we see some of, um, I mean, I've, I've read a few articles over the last six months about uh, a certain negative response to the influence of China in various parts of Asia, but also in Africa, uh, in which mm. it's tried to sort of overplay its hand, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, determine local 
policies. So I, w I think that's going to be an interesting area for research for somebody. You know, the, the consequences of China's influence and what it's happy about happening locally or not, right. and the resistance to that based on these remaining, you know, nationalist identities. And of course, this is part of the global capitalist change that we're seeing at, this, at the same time as, you know, America declines. But yeah. it's all fascinating. And to use that word you've said several times, it's all very, very complex. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that, you know, for some people, this becomes uh, a more interesting or riper area of research or inquiry. And I think that brings us nicely on to the next question, which is really, um, well, I'll read the question out because it, it's posed as it is. So on a recent podcast, we lamented the lingering and hard to kill off belief in a single true Buddhism. And it does seem to be in the background of so much thinking, uh, accompanying both the preservation and innovation uh, in Buddhism currently. It also seems to be very much wrapped up in identities and notions of truth. I wonder if you can speak to this, because in a part you've been undermining this idea of single, easily to define categories. Mm -hmm. And can you share what you might you think might be the consequences of accepting that no one true Buddhism actually exists? Um. Well, I've already accepted that no one true Buddhism exists. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> um, and and I feel quite happy actually. So, <laughs> so you're recommending it? Then. So those are the consequences. <laughs> well, it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating question. It's definitely one that um, you know uh, that comes up all the time, even in my uh, my courses where I teach. You know, people will. Um, People people become very fixated on this idea that there is um, that there exists somewhere in the tradition, you know, what the Buddha really said, or you know, the original idea, or or whatnot. And um, you know, I think that that idea there's a couple of different things. So one one there's the idea that there's a sort of true or pure or right Buddhism in the present, but also the idea that there was a an original Buddhism, right? And I think those two things are 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 inextricably related um, because if you're interested in finding the one pure or real Buddhism now, inevitably you're going to base that on, um, on, on something that was in the past that we've lost. Right. Um, and it also means that you're quite happy to decide what's wrong Buddhism. Well. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Just to throw in an obvious point. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I've seen this rhetoric from some contemporary teachers, right. Who will couch it in that language of, of there's, there's one Dharma, right. That all Buddhisms have something in common. Um, and if, if you think that all Buddhisms have something in common, um, you, you, ha you have to put boundaries on that and inevitably something's going to fall outside of that, that category. And then it raises the question of what do you do with that thing that you've either implicitly or explicitly stated as the wrong Buddhism? <laughs> um, there are consequences to that, that decision. Um, and, you know, from my, from my point of view, um, I, you know, as, as, a, as 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 merely a scholar, I believe that that my job is to sort of chart the territory and to say, and this is this is my point of view specifically as somebody in the classroom, right? When students come into my classroom, I don't think that it's my my place to say this is the real deal, this is the true Buddhism, and all these other Buddhisms are not true. Um, my my job as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a pedagogue, is to say, this is what's going on out in the world. And all of these different Buddhists claim that they have some, you know, 
the the market cornered on Buddhism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if <laughs> if we accept that all of these different, very very diverse, very very divergent um, strands of the tradition all claim to be the same thing, then to your question, what are the consequences? You know, how do we how do we sort of accept this multiplicity of, of points of view? From the point of view of a teacher or from the point of view of just sort of learning about the tradition, I think this is very, very healthy and, and helpful to sort of go through that exercise and just sort of recognize the complexity and diversity of the world that we live in. Um, from the point of view of somebody who's trying to find their own their own path and their own their own way forward, I think that um, that can be very, very um, uh, existentially challenging, right? Because it calls into question – what it is that you're doing. <laughs> um, am I on the right path? Am I on the wrong path? And, um, you know, because I'm not, because I'm not a priest or a monk or, or, or whatever, I, I sort of feel like I couldn't let myself off the hook and not answer that question for people. <laughs> <laughs> but I also understand that, that impulse having been somebody who, you know, who, uh, had his own experiences on multiple paths and, um, you know, had his own existential crises. Um, I, I'm, I'm empathetic to that feeling. And, and what, where I've come to is this, this, this belief that, um, but at some point, it doesn't really matter. What matters is what works, right, for the individual. If, um, you know, if secular mindfulness meditation works for you and that is, you know, giving you some meaning in your life and is making you happy and well-adjusted and not a jerk, then great. Have fun. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I think the real problem is this desire for us to say that whatever path I've chosen is the right path. And because I've chosen it as the right path, it must be the right path for everybody. And that for me to be right, everybody else has to agree with me. Um, and the reverse is also true, right? If I dislike something, then everybody else also has to dislike it. Um, I think that's kind of where we end up in our popular rhetoric nowadays, that we can't just accept the fact that different people have different opinions <laughs> um, about about in a, about subjective things. I'm not, I'm not talking about different opinions about, about factual truths, right? Or, or right. you know, now that we're living in a post-truth age, which is a bunch of bullshit, but... <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> but but about matters of opinion or taste, right? Mm, you know, um, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm not. I, I appreciate the the artistic merits of, of improvisational or experimental jazz. You know, I don't necessarily choose to listen to it all the time. <laughs> you know, yeah, I agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I appreciate that it has value and the sort of abstract, but yeah, it's just yeah, not yeah, my yeah. it's not my yeah. taste. And if somebody came to me and said, "You are a horrible human being because you don't like this kind of music," that would seem weird, right? <laughs> it certainly would. <laughs> And yet we do the same thing when it comes to, you know, uh, you don't do yoga. You need to do yoga. That will make you happy. It's like, well, maybe it won't. <laughs> and that's really okay. <laughs> um, so I think that part of the problem is just that sort of level of rhetoric where we browbeat each other to try to get everybody to do the same thing, which is just seems strange to me. Um, but I think it's also rooted in this long history of um, – both academic and popular Buddhist rhetoric about what constitutes the original or true Buddhism. I think this is this really goes back to this idea that we can sift through the tradition and somehow figure out exactly who the Buddha was as a human being and exactly what he said. And if we can know that, then that's that's what constitutes real Buddhism. And then everything else um, is is not real and we can reject it. Um, and I find that attitude um, problematic, I guess I'll say. <laughs> 
um, for a number of reasons. One, I think it's based on a sort of methodological set of assumptions that are, are, are coming out of a Protestant Christian context of the quest for the historical Jesus. Right, um, right. And I'm not sure if the quest for the historical Buddha is as important within our tradition as it, as it has been in other traditions. And so that's just a, a line of inquiry that we should open up. Um, the other problem, I think, is that if you assume that um, the Buddha had it right and that everybody else who followed him has been messing it up since then, then that's <laughs> basically what you're saying, right? That everything after the Buddha has been a colossal mistake. And I'm that's a, that's a huge claim to make, right? That everybody has been basically getting it wrong for two and a half thousand years. Yeah. Um, that's just a, a big claim <laughs> that I, I, I think that, you know, you should sort of check in with yourself and think if that's really what you want to make. Because then the following claim is, okay, everybody between the Buddha and now has been getting it wrong, but somehow I have gotten it right. Oh, yeah, that's a nice one. <laughs> right, that's the other claim that's being made, right? <laughs> I've heard that one once or twice, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, basically, my, my friend Harry Bridge, we did a podcast together, he said, um, he likes to say that the history of Buddhism is a history of interpretation, that that every Buddhist has come along and interpreted the teachings in their own way for their own time, uh, for their own congregations or sanghas or whatever. Um, and if you say that all of those people have been interpreting it wrong, but I've got it right. That's also a, a fairly large claim. And if that's your claim, then I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to see your credentials there, sir, and figure out <laughs> how you're making that claim, uh, what, the, what the basis of that claim is. Um, you know, not to say you can't make that claim. It's just a large claim, right? <laughs> yeah, I'd put it a large something else. I think you're being very kind. <laughs> you know, right speech, all that. <laughs> yeah, right. Very good. Very good. <laughs> you, you did that today. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, um, I think, I think yeah. also there's just this idea as well that the teachings are somehow frozen in time. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. also deeply problematic, which I'm sure is obvious to you. But again, even in that phrase, you know, uh, interpret the teachings, it kind of portrays some idea that the teachings are frozen in time somewhere. Right, right. And we, we we're always working with them as the basis for everything that comes forward. I think that um, I, I think the one interesting thing that would happen for practitioners is that if they were to give up this idea, you're right that it would be an existential challenge, but it would also perhaps um, require them to get a bit more historical context for understanding their traditions, which, in my view, I mean, in most cases, should be good, right? I mean, one of the consequences of being modern postmodern or whatever we are nowadays, I don't know what to call us, is that we're kind of obliged by the social context not only to recognize the complexities you've spoken about, but also the fact that we have a kind of duty to respond to that complexity, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, I think in many ways what we're doing is some form of escapism. And I, and I don't know, I, I think this is the more judgmental side of me. I, there's one thing I'd like to push slightly is this idea that we have a duty to engage with the knowledge of our time to some degree, to the degree that we're able, and mm. recognize that actually we can't just, you know, sit it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sitting out is also a choice, right? <laughs> Yeah, it is. I, I guess I'd, have to, I'd give it a name. I call it cowardly or something. Yeah, something I mean, you know, yeah. That. When you're faced with the diversity and complexity of, of the world, you can either, yeah. you know, double down on your perspective and basically become a fundamentalist, or you can, um, you know, choose not to engage, mm -hmm. um, which might be cowardly, um, or you know, uh, find some middle ground in there um, to. 
<laughs> unintentional use a Buddhist phrase, <laughs> to, to find a space wherein you can um, be okay with the complexity, right? To find some some way to, to balance that complexity and um, appreciate it in some, in some way. Um, which, uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, but also, you know, I think that the other... Uh, it seems to me that uh, particularly at this particular moment in history, there's this sense of, uh, again, these harsh sort of choices or dichotomies between, um, on the one hand, you have to sort of, you know, s- stand your ground in your ideology. Um, and, and this is the way things are. And, you know, sort of a fundamentalist kind of attitude versus, you know, respecting everybody and assuming that everybody has a right to their opinion, um, right. Right. Uh, or their perspective or whatever, and just being completely, um, open to whatever. Um, and I think that's a, a false choice, right? That, um, that there are some ideas that are just demonstrably untrue. Um, there are some things that people believe that just are not factually correct. Um, and that it's, it's, we need to be able to, to say that we need to be able to say, Oh no, actually what you just said is, is, is demonstrably untrue. It's factually incorrect. And the beliefs that you have that are related to that just don't, hold water and so stop acting in that way <laughs> um, that there are some some facts in the world right that we can rely on there are some things um, and uh, so I, I think that there, there that, I think that's what I'm reading as you're um, what you called engaging with the thoughts of the day or, or is that what you called it uh, of being able yeah, to yeah yeah I mean you know yeah. the, the knowledge that's the, that we have access to as you said I mean we can talk about facts but we can also talk about certain issues being resolved to some degree right and right. a retreat to fundamentalism seems to be in certain cases uh, a sort of refusal to acknowledge that and engage with it yeah absolutely right yeah exactly where you know we've all sort of agreed that you know this was a bad idea like as a society we were like oh yeah we tried that didn't work we're going to move on um and then the fundamentalist attitude is like no i'm going to double down on this bad idea and and Mm -hmm. claim that that's that's the thing that's always true um which is deeply problematic both you know personally and politically right Mm -hmm. um uh so yeah I, i think that and then the response to this, I think, particularly on some in some quarters of, of the American uh, progressive stream, has been to say, "Oh, we need to respect everything and respect different points of view." And I think that's that's become that's become the sort of Achilles' heel because when you respect and accept everything, um, you fall into that that paradox, the um, the tolerance paradox. Um, I can't mm-hmm. remember who came with the the. Can't, you need to be intolerant of intolerance or something, yeah. right? <laughs> That sounds um, about right, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be tolerant of intolerances, I think, the, the way Something it's phrased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> um, which is, uh, I think, a, a, a thing that we've sort of lost um, in the last uh, a few years. So the, um, uh, it's going to come to me as soon as we stop recording. The philosopher yeah, who came up with that paradox. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was writing immediately after World War II, and he's, you know, he, he very clearly lived that experience and said, you know, a society that is um, tolerant of intolerance inevitably falls into fascism. Um, yeah. So <laughs> the intolerant win. So I think that we need to be in a space where we can uh, we can call out sort of fundamentalisms um, or other um, extreme ideologies and say, you know. 
what you're basing your um, your your beliefs or your actions on has been disproved or is um, harmful or doesn't work or something, mm-hmm. um, and 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 be okay with that, and not just to sort of accept the wide diversity. I think engaging the wide diversity is a way in which we can open um, our perspectives and see the world from different points of view, which allows for a certain kind of tolerance, but it also uh, gives us the experience. Um, the critical experience of being able to test that knowledge, right? If you if you expand your your perspectives um, to the wide diversity of things, you can see more things that work as well as more things that don't work, um, and then sharpen that critical edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. I think I think the other problem as well in the political landscape, which unfortunately connects America to um, various European countries, is is the inability to distinguish, or I should say that uh, for many on the left, and I'm on the left, I have to keep repeating this these days, <laughs> some fundamentalisms are okay and others are not, right? <laughs> some are easier right. targets to manage right. than others. Yeah, and, well, uh, that's the uh, intolerance, tolerance. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and that kind of yeah. undermines the argument, as you, as you rightly noted. But uh, mm-hmm. many of us who are somewhere in the middle somewhere get left behind these days. But <laughs> hey, let's not get into talking about politics. It's mean, still too much of your time. Now, as is often the case in these conversations, lots of um, lots of topics and areas and come up, and we end up having complex discussions. But um, without being too trite, let's talk about two areas which have come up in your your own work, and that I think it would be useful for for us to discuss briefly: um, decolonization and heritage Buddhisms. These are two terms which are beginning to appear more often in some of the um, more interesting research taking place on the contemporary Buddhist landscape. Can you talk about both of those for a moment and perhaps give us a definition for each and say what you think is the importance of these two lines of inquiry? Um, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, ready? I'll tackle decolonization first. Um, I... Uh, it occurred to me, uh, I've been doing some research for a course I'm teaching this spring, and um, decolonization actually came up from a different discipline. Um, and it occurred to me that that's a, a realm of discourse that I was unaware um, uh, that I have some blind spots on. Um, but part of part of um, the decolonization rhetoric that I've seen a lot of is this just that word sort of coming up. Um, and I and I sort of took it to mean that it was um, this explicit um, activist stance on the part of some uh, uh, Buddhists to sort of reclaim an identity outside of uh, whiteness, right? That uh, this is related to the things I was saying earlier, right? That uh, um, a lot of the influences for what we sort of take as Western Buddhism are actually coming from other spaces, um, which is all well and good, and I support that. But the the term decolonization also has this history of um, coming out of activist spaces, usually from indigenous people who are talking about decolonization, not metaphorically, but literally, um, and uh, an activist uh, standpoint of, of literally decolonizing uh, native land, um, which is uh, a very different project than I think what... Um, this word has has come to mean in some Buddhist circles, and so I think it's it's worth people knowing that um, there's a, a long, longer history to that term that um, is is pointing to something different. <laughs> um, the the literal decolonization of native land is very very different than um, merely uh, claiming or or wanting to reclaim the sort of uh, shared history of, of of Asian identities with um, white Buddhist identities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
having said that, I think that the decolonization project within um, uh, or discourse, I should say, within certain American Buddhist spaces is really is mostly about that is sort of. Um, drawing our attention to histories that have been uh, marginalized or ignored um, over the last, you know, 50 years or so. Um, and so uh, work such as um, uh, Duncan Williams has a new book coming out. You mentioned Anne Glegg a little while ago. Her new book is American Dharma. And Duncan Williams's book is um, American Sutra. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping somebody else will write a book called American Buddha to, you know, round out that trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, if you've got spare time, it could be you, Scott. If i got spare time, it could be me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Duncan Williams' book is about um, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II um, mm-hmm. and the way in which religion gets implicated in that. Um, so, you know, many people when in the States, when we talk about uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, it's usually because they were Japanese, right? And the, the sort of threat of the Japanese other. Um, but Duncan's work is, is phenomenal in looking at um, you know, declassified documents from um, the government and, and, and all of this very long history showing that the people that were that were targeted first were targeted uh, specifically because they were Buddhist. And being Buddhist meant that they were even more other than merely being not white, right? Oh, okay. Um, because, you know, you know, America is a white Christian nation. So if, you know, you're a Japanese Christian, at least you're halfway there, right? <laughs> hmm. um, so, you know, I think that there's this history of the way in which Buddhism and 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 uh, Asian identities or Buddhism and race is is under under theorized in um, both the academic literature, but also in uh, popular imagination. Um, you know, I've had I've had students, and I've I've talked to people who will um, say, "Oh, you know, I, I became a Zen student um, under uh, Shinru Suzuki's uh, uh, the Zen Center of San Francisco." You know, uh, lineage. So you know, Buddhism in America, Zen Buddhism in America really begins in, you know, like 1960. And, <laughs> and I say, well, no, um, Suzuki was actually assigned as the temple minister of a temple in San Francisco's Japantown that was originally established in 1939. So, you know, Zen in San Francisco begins in 1939, <laughs> you know, what you're talking about is when it became popular among, you know, a particular class of people. Um, but it had been here for, you know, a couple of generations before that. So that's part of that sort of um, way of talking about history that um, that expands our view beyond a particular uh, narrative that we've sort of inherited, right? And that I think some people might consider to be a sort of decolonization project. Um, I, I just call it, you know, good history. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. But, you know, one of the outcomes that you're just describing sounds like it's, um, I was reading an article that was um, in the Guardian newspaper today, which was talking about uh, the attempt to um, destabilize origin stories in superhero films. Mm. Now, I mean, this is off topic, but... Oh, no, this is very speaking, much on topic. <laughs> okay, there we go. When you were talking about, you know, this this person who said, oh, you know, Zen Buddhism began in the 60s. I mean, what they're also doing is telling an origin story, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're inventing a superhero in the form of uh, Shunryo Suzuki. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of nice because it. One thing it does, of course, is when you have a nice, simple origin story, it eliminates the complexity that keeps popping up in our conversation, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Anyway, yeah. sorry for that. No, no, that's but. completely on point. <laughs> you know, when we were talking earlier about secularism and um, uh, how, you know, you might just end up being religiously secular or whatnot. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I was uh, that came to my mind then is that uh, this this seems to me to be the, the case is that religion is not particularly a, a unique human phenomenon, that what, what humans do is they create um, communities and they create sort of shared identities. And religion is one way they do that. Um, and also superheroes is one way they do that through science fiction or through fandom, right? Through popular culture, people create sort of a sense of, oh, I'm I'm a, a Star Trek fan, right? And then they create a community. The 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 sort of human behavior there, I think, is is kind of the same. <laughs> <laughs> It serves a lot of the same functions, but we've come along and labeled some of it religion and given it a higher um, value. <laughs> than, that's, a, than, that's a very Jejectian <laughs> perspective, Scott. <laughs> Don't tell me you've been reading uh, European philosophers. <laughs> uh, you know, mostly just their blogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's some more interesting stuff anyway. <laughs> well, but to back to your point, I do think that that's definitely an origin story, right? And and what yeah. and and what these folks will do is they'll create an origin story, and and part of that is that they get implicated in that, right? Like I'm part of that right, lineage, right. and yeah, nice. my my origin is is tied up with this superhero figure, and yeah. so for me to come along and say, well, actually, he was just, you know, he was he, he was sort of sent here. Not because he wanted to come here, but because he was part of this larger Soto Zen organization in Japan, you know, and they didn't send their best and brightest <laughs> oftentimes. <laughs> right. Whoops. You know, this sort of undermines the um, the the high, uh, uh, you know, uh, altar that this person has been put on, which becomes very destabilizing. And, you know, I. I, I feel as though is this this is this is sort of one of the responsibilities of a, of a teacher, right? In a, an academic setting, you sort of do some of this critical work, um, and in in the context of the classroom, it's sort of a safe space. I'll often tell my students every semester, you know, we're going to try some crazy ideas this semester, some difficult ideas. We're going to challenge you. I'm going to push you to challenge your thinking. But at the end of the semester, you can forget everything I taught you. <laughs> <laughs> You can go back well, to believing like, whatever you want. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like you have fun in the classroom anyway. I think this is this is an important uh, sort of caveat. I don't I don't think my students actually do forget everything. I hope that my students do, well, you know, no, walk yeah. away with something. But um, to, to create that space of play, really, to create that space where people can sort of try out new ideas, which I recognize, particularly for the true believers in the class can be highly destabilizing to be told that, you know, this person that you've idolized your whole life is, is actually not an idol can be, um, just that can be destabilizing. And I want to make sure that people have that, that, uh, that space to play with the idea. And then also in their mind somewhere know that they can sort of back out if they, if they need to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it doesn't have to be, I mean, seeing the, the facts on the ground doesn't have to be an act of cruelty, right? No, 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 no. Yeah, and that's just something else, too. One of my students and I go back and forth about um, critique and criticism and um, the, the, the way in which um, it seems as though the only thing academics do anymore is just criticize everything and critique it and sort of uh, break it all down. And, um, and uh, you know, is there an alternative there? And um, I, I don't have any good answers for it. <laughs> <laughs> Because well, I, think, I, think I think critique is important, and I think we do need to yeah, actually yeah. be critical of the world in yeah. which we live. And um, 
but in the process of critiquing, I think that we or doing criticism, I should say, we also, I think, in many ways, do do some constructive work and create new understandings. You know, so in this to so sort of circle back to the um, decolonization issue, by destabilizing the um, the origin story, you then have the opportunity to create a new origin story. Right now, the lineage that you're a part of doesn't just go back to 1960; it goes back to 1939, and you're implicated now in actually a much larger um, lineage, one that doesn't begin with a bunch of white hippies in the 60s, but actually is inclusive of a much larger, um, a much larger community. Um, and then that, I think, is uh, a much, uh, much better place to be, quite frankly, um, uh, than the sort of narrow uh, perspective of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes makes the family of practitioners far larger. And, you know, potentially more interesting, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Big families you know, are great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Especially if you can leave them at the, you know, the Buddhist temple. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, what? I was thinking about the point you made earlier about criticism and critique, because it's funny, uh, depending on the language you speak, the distinction between those terms can be sharper, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. mean, people often think of critique as criticism and uh, as them... Uh, being interchangeable, which of course is a mistake. Right. And I think that uh, certainly if you're, if you're practicing this stuff in the Buddhist world, the notion of kindness uh, can easily be coupled to any kind of, of teaching along that lines. Um, but I think, I think I would agree with you. I think, you know, one thing we'd certainly need to do is to make s- smart judgments or mm-hmm. informed judgments. And perhaps that's the lingering influence of the new age fantasy land sort of, you know, a uh, set of odd, uh, transcendent, idealistic beliefs that for a while got imported into Buddhism. And one of them was, oh, we, sh- we mustn't judge. You know, right, judgment right. is actually an act of evil. But of course, that's ridiculous. It's not true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I tell people, well, you know, do you judge what you have for breakfast? Was it an evil act? Uh-huh, uh-huh. No. All right. Well, okay. Well, you do that all the time and it's necessary. Right. And it's also sort of, I, I, you know, there's a there's a um, uh, an irony or a paradox that, students often get hung up on when they start to, you know, lo- really looking at early Buddhist philosophy and think, okay, um, we're not supposed to be judgmental, but the, the beginning teaching is this set of, of things that are right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right view, you know, right speech, right thought, whatever. Uh, that implies that there's a wrong view, right? Um, and if that's yeah. the case, then you're making a judgment. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's sort of embedded within the path, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that judgment is definitely um, – or you know, having some sort of critical um, uh, view of things is is is, is oftentimes very necessary. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, especially in a post-truth world, as you, <laughs> you rightly hinted at earlier. Yeah, the other one as well, of course, is you know the the, the call to authority is a classic in terms of uh, a lack of critical thinking, and I think you know people more generally and more widely could do with developing more critical thinking skills. And, uh, I mean, certainly here in Italy, critical thinking is not taught at all. I actually teach it as part of my uh, teaching practice. And it's fascinating to see, you know, university students even who, who've just never heard about this idea that you can approach certain ideas in certain ways. And I think one of the, the benefits that can come out of something like a meditation practice is it can free you up from some of that self-centeredness and that sort of self-conscious thought that doesn't allow you to more freely engage in the kind of creative thinking that you're quite evidently engaged in yourself with your students. Mm-hmm. But um, we're missing 
one of the, the pair I gave you in the previous question, which was heritage Buddhism. Would you like to say something about that? Uh, sh- sure. <laughs> um, I think or that not. the uh, no, well, no. I think that the the term uh, heritage Buddhism. I have a um, I, so I sort of have some ambivalent feelings towards. Um, oh, okay. <clears throat> um, in part because I, it seems to me that it, uh, the 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 adoption of this term has come out of the um, the end result of debates about the the two Buddhisms category. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a significant period of time uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of people were doing work on those, these these two Buddhisms categories, and one was um, usually defined as Asian and Asian American, and one was defined as convert or white. Um, and out of that that discourse emerged this term heritage Buddhism, which I think in many ways just simply replaced um, Asian American um, and implies that your, um, your, that your Buddhism is part of a, a family ancestry, right? You're, you're a Buddhist because your parents were a Buddhist and they were Buddhist. So you have a heritage in the tradition. Um, as a general term, it seems fine. Um, but it also, I think, raises lots of questions because it is rooted within this um, this this division or this um, this typology of two Buddhisms, which has been um, pretty thoroughly critiqued and um, has lots of problematic aspects to it. So, because of of that relationship, I'm I was a little hesitant to um, sort of jump on the heritage bandwa- bandwagon, um, in part because I think that it also um, uh, it relies on a dichotomy between heritage and convert. Um, is the is the fundamental um, distinction that's being made there? You know, if you're a heritage Buddhist, you grew up as a Buddhist. You didn't convert to Buddhism. Um, and part of the issue there, and this is something that Shannon Hickey, Wako Hickey, and her um, and her um, uh, writings will will point on, is that any sort of typology of Buddhism uh, that's sort of frozen in time can't account for generational um, change, right? In other words, if I'm a convert Buddhism and I raise my child as a Buddhist, then she becomes a heritage Buddhist, right? So that says nothing that those categories say nothing about the actual communities or lineages that people practice in. It is really only talking about the individual. And that's another one of the, the concerns I have about the, the sort of larger category of heritage Buddhism is that it is really talking about individuals and doesn't necessarily reflect um, communities that people are involved in. A lot of the convert communities that we that we um, talk about nowadays, you know, the Zen centers and the, um, the Shambhala um, and insight meditation communities, you know, these have been around for 50 years. <laughs> um, and there are people who are children and grandchildren of the people who, start, who started these communities. At what point can we stop calling them converts, right? At what point are they no longer converts? Because really being a convert, I think, means you're talking about an individual's experience with the religion, not the community itself, right? And I think the same can be said of, of heritage. You're talking about the individual's experience with Buddhism and not necessarily the, tr- the tradition they're following in. Um, you know, I, I could be a heritage Buddhist, but I could be from any tradition, right? So from a sort of sociological point of view of how we're um, creating a typology to account for large populations of Buddhists, I think these terms are somewhat um, ambiguous, um, in terms of how individuals refer to themselves, that's a different story. And for there, I think it's completely appropriate. Again, I think that folks who 
identify as, as heritage Buddhists are doing a lot of that same work of trying to um, uh, reestablish their connection to a historical lineage, right? They're trying to create their own origin story. Um, and same with being a convert, you know, you're, you're sort of placing yourself in a particular relationship to a tradition. Um, and that is completely that, that's that makes total sense to me um but from a sort of again from a sort of larger sociological point of view if i was going to say you know how many buddhists are there in this country and how would i ta- uh, ta- um, categorize them those terms uh get a little bit ambiguous right because again they're about an individual's relationship and not about the community itself um so from from that point of view i think that there's there's better terms to use um and the the final thing I'll say um, about this is that I, the other thing that I think that happens in this context is that um, oftentimes when we talk about heritage Buddhism or we sort of create this category of heritage Buddhists, we still do the work of separating it out from uh, Western Buddhism or from American Buddhism. And this is one of the critiques of the two Buddhisms um, dichotomy was that we had American Buddhism versus ethnic Buddhism, which implied that Asian Americans weren't American, right? So this is one of the, the problematics of, of the way that term got used. Not necessarily the way it was originally written about or the, the people who are doing the original um, research on it were, were talking about it, but the way it got sort of translated into popular discourse, um, it created this, the conditions for Asian Americans to, to continue to feel excluded from the category of Americanness, right? And so if we create a dichotomy where there's Western Buddhism and then there's heritage Buddhism, we're, we're, re, um, we're, we're doing that work again of separating out Asian Buddhists from Western Buddhists. Um, and again... You know, if the Zen community goes back to 1939, if Buddhism was first brought to this country um, as a as a living religion in the 1800s, then you know, at what point can we finally include heritage Buddhists in that umbrella of Western Buddhists? You know, um, I I've I have lots I've know lots of people who are fifth generation Japanese or Chinese American. Um, they're American, right? <laughs> they, they have no connection sure. to Asia whatsoever. <laughs> they're, um, you know, they're as Asian as I am German, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of some of the problematics I see in, in that term. But um, again, yeah. you know, uh, and, and again, I really, you know, from the point of view of an individual practitioner, you know, if I come, I'm a convert, that's a true statement, right? Because I didn't grow a Buddhist and then I converted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a statement of fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was there was a nice phrase you used in the middle there, which is you said you didn't. The way you said it, I think, is important, which is that you said excluded from a category. Right, yeah. Because it's all we we do live in an age in which categories are, are, are thrown around uh, politically in a way that's quite um, battle orientated, right? Right. We see this, you know, you're this or you're that. You're not this or you're not that. Yeah. And it's strange because it seems to be leaning on the idea that there are true things out there or true categories again. Mm-hmm. But if I can only just get inside that group, somehow I'll find the authentic real deal, whether it's me or Buddhism or something else. Right. And it seems odd to me, it's a very odd political game for us to be playing, because as you said, what defines whether somebody's this or that at the end of the day, as you, as you rightly said, it, it is kind of personal choice to some degree. But in the wider scheme of things, are we all required to get on board with the same categorization system? And for how long is it supposed to last before somebody comes up with another one and forces us to change further? 
Well, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things I also like to tell my students is that fundamentally, I think that human be that, that Homo sapiens are um, social apes. Um, oh, I, I was about to throw in what popped in my mind before you said that was monkey brain. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're social primates, right? We're um, exactly, we're, we're yeah. not that different from chimpanzees and bonobos. And if you look at what those <laughs> what those animals are doing out in the wild, is they yeah. they create troops, right? That's what we that's what we call them, right? They're troops of, right, of, right, of right, chimpanzees right. Yeah. who have very rigid um, senses of of tribalism, right? You know, we are yeah. a part of this troop. Of of of, <laughs> of primates and you're not and if you come into our space we attack right um, I think human beings do a lot of the same work we we spend a lot of of time creating communities creating collective identities collecting uh, creating sort of collective subjectivities and and defining tribes of persons whether it's you know religion or nationalism or politics or whatever um a lot of that behavior seems very very similar to me and you, and i think you're right the problem is is that we then um, sort of extend that that almost uh, biological drive right to create tribes to the sense of well you don't belong to my tribe and so you need to get out and um if i don't if i find myself outside of the tribe i feel like i'm going to die right i don't have that mm -hmm. that that connection to something true and real um and i need to get into it <laughs> in some <laughs> some way in order to not have that existential crisis um you know uh, so I, I don't have a solution to that. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, a few a few guys came up with a few ideas at some point, didn't they? I mean, right. You know, but one it, of them was this idea of a universal ideal of our species as being singular, uh -huh, yeah, multiple. Yeah. But right. we don't we don't seem to be doing very well with that one at present. <laughs> Well, you know, the other thing, you, you know, you well, before we were talking about, uh, you know, the, the true Buddhism or, or real Buddhism right. uh, or that the Buddha had some truth that can be knowable today. Right. Um, all of that to me feels very much like um, a, a, just a series of religious truth claims. Um, and generally speaking, I, I find myself rather agnostic about most um, most truth claims. So, uh, you know. When I say I don't know what the solution is, I, I really mean that. I really don't know what the best way to be human is um, and whether or not, you know, being a, a Buddhist works better than being something else. Um, you know, <laughs> this is my this is my state of agnosticism of just being in a perpetual state of, I, you know, I don't know. And this is what I figured out works for me. And hopefully um, I'm not um, harming anybody in the process. <laughs> Well, at least you can be more honest from that position. <laughs> right. <laughs> Step out of multiple battles. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think as well, you know, the other the other point that, that links back to our conversation so far today is this, this history, you know. Um, I like the fact that you stated that, you know, understanding history is not really about a story, right? It's understanding the facts. That's actually what happened. And I think that's one of the, the problems we have in some of the political debates today is, mm -hmm. is that distinction between nature and nurture. And, you know, that's essentialized on both counts. But one thing I think all religious and spiritual people struggle with is remembering that point that, you know, we are basically apes. Right. <laughs> right. It's, like, it's like the sort of dark underbelly of, of much religious discourse. We just don't want to admit it. And I don't think Buddhists escape from that at all. And oh, I think no, Western, no, not at all. Right? No. <laughs> I think Western Buddhists are, are still dragging, as I often mention, I mean, it's an obvious point, but people seem to miss it still. 
you know, American Buddhism is saturated by, you know, Judeo-Christian idealism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a way that's just incredible. And it seeps out in much of the discourse about, you know, what's good and bad and so forth. But again, that's another sidetrack we could head down. And instead, I want to get on to the next question. So uh, here it is. You have a, a chapter in your book, uh, Buddhism in America, named Postmodern Horizons, if I remember correctly. And what's nice about it, and this relates to what you've just said, you don't know, so you don't have to know for this question either, Scott, don't worry. But it's written Postmodern Horizons, and the chapter title has a question mark at the end. Yeah. Now, you know, this, I can't help but, you know, link this back to David McMahon's uh, book, because, you know, The Makings of Buddhist Modernism had a final chapter too, in which he sort of posed a kind of open question about, well, What's next? Is it going to be some form of postmodern Buddhism? So the question is this: What are you, what are your thoughts at the moment, and as much as you know them, on the impact of postmodern thought on contemporary Western Buddhism, but also the academic approach to it? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I'll start by saying I, you know, the, the great thing about writing that book was that it was a um, fish as a textbook, so I felt like I could play with ideas and not necessarily have to uh, have any definitive answers. <laughs> Okay. So you being, have to be the expert. Being able to put in a question mark there was um, a <laughs> sort of nod in that direction. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, you know, um, so, you know, as far as postmodern thought influencing uh, American Buddhist discourse, that's a that's a tricky a tricky question to answer. I feel like I, I, it's like a, it's like a hypothesis that needs to be tested. Um, the, ex the extent to which, um, a particular school of philosophy has influenced particular, um, uh, public, you know, discourses of, of Buddhism, <clears throat> uh, would be an interesting sort of research project. And I, and I say this in part because it seems to me that oftentimes, um, people interpreting their behavior or their traditions as postmodern happens sort of as an, as an afterthought. Um, some of the, the communities that I, that I study, um, that I survey in that chapter. And, um, a lot of them are the same ones that, um, Anne Glegg is going to talk in her, about in her book. Um, a lot of these communities sort of emerged as, um, or discourses emerged as a response to an earlier generation of American Buddhists. Um, and, it, it, you can almost read it as, you know, people just sort of n not grooving with what was going on before and then mm. coming up with um, a way of justifying their decision to leave that community later on. Um, and then in that process, coming into contact with um, academics who have labeled it as postmodern and then the Buddhists sort of taking on that identity as postmodern. <laughs> <laughs> Which is rather postmodern. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I think that the influence of postmodern thought on, on the academic study of Buddhism is, is, is much more clearly obvious. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of engagement in Buddhist studies with the big um, thinkers of postmodern thought, none of whom call themselves postmodernists, <laughs> you know, such as Foucault or Derrida. Um, a lot of people are interested in that. Um, in that body of work. And I think that that way of looking at, um, you know, particularly uh, post-structuralist kind of uh, stuff, I think is, is still very much influential within, but uh, in Buddhist studies and probably will continue to be. 
for some time um, until something better comes along <laughs> or <laughs> not better is not, not the right word there, but something different comes along anyway. You, you can judge Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's interesting. We do need something better. I'd, I'd fully agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was co-teaching a course with one of my graduate students uh, last fall and um, for some reason Foucault just kept coming back and by the end of the semester he and I were um, both playing on each other um, sort of devil's advocate style but also just really mm. sick of Foucault. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good sign. <laughs> it was sort of an introductory course and you know you have to bring in right. like, this is what people are writing and where it's coming from anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as the academic study is concerned, I'm sure that um, other ideas will sort of emerge um, as time goes by. Um, is that there was another part of your question though, not just postmodernism but the the future more generally? Uh, of American Buddhism? <laughs> well, that's actually the last question. So you, there you go. Oh. You just started it. <laughs> yeah. So this is the last question. Um, yeah, and, and you know, maybe you'll you'll have some thoughts on this then, since you you seem to be fed up with certain strains of postmodern <laughs> thought. What do what do you see on the horizon for American Buddhism? Uh, and just to complicate it, Western Buddhism more generally and Buddhism globally. And since you know you have such a a lively creative approach to all this. Uh, what do you find most fascinating in, in what you see coming down the road? Um, well, I, I'll, I'll say that what I find most fascinating is uh, people's continued denial of the facts on the ground. Um, and specifically <laughs> what I mean, you know, this is especially over the last couple of years, um, people will ask me variations on this question of what do you see in the future for this or for, you know, your school or for, you know, your research. And, and I'll often jokingly preface it by saying, well, you know, if society doesn't crumble, um, you know, this is what I hope to be doing. Um, there's a certain urgency about that joke, however, <laughs> a certain seriousness yeah. that um, I think, you know, not only are things pretty destabilized here in the U.S., um, but they seem to be pretty destabilized in a lot of the the, the Western world. Um, and I think that what is really underneath a lot of that, of course, is the the impending ecological crisis that we as a planet, as a species, are going to be facing. Um, that is going to have pretty pretty serious impacts on on most corners of the globe, right? Um, arguably, the um, the refugee crisis is the result of um, climate change that um, that resulted in um, the displacement of people, right? And then oh, the war that came on top of that. Um, so the, the movement of people, I think about here in the United States, Florida is going to be underwater. There's millions of people who live in Florida. Where are they going to go? You know, I mean, those kinds mm-hmm. of questions um, are, are serious and qu- uh, important questions. And um, when I say people's inability to sort of face that, um, a lot of people still continue to, to act as though we can continue doing what we're doing as Buddhists or as scholars or as whatever. Um, and, and I'm guilty of this as well. I have lots of research plans. Um, I'm in charge of a lot of things at the Institute of Buddhist Studies that you know I hope that we will be able to accomplish in 2025 or whatever. Um, and 
but but really there's <laughs> there's no guarantee that uh the world will be stable enough for any of that to, to actually come to fruition so to go back to what i said before i mean buddhism doesn't exist in isolation or apart from the world buddhism exists within the world and so if the world is no longer stable then buddhism can't be stable right um so i think that 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 needs to be brought into that conversation somehow and, and i i don't i don't you know this sounds horribly pessimistic um which is, um, you know, the sort of antithetical to an American idealism. <laughs> We're supposed to be optimists. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's actually rather, I think, difficult for many people to sort of um, to, to face that possible um, future reality that's not very far off um, and, 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 and really come to terms with that. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it will be interesting, I think, to, to see how Buddhism can negotiate the the changing terrain and if some buddhisms will and some buddhisms won't right um i I think about um you know the what's going on with the shambhala international community right now and all the revelations of the sexual scandals um i i said earlier you know ironically this has been going on for a long time you know the, the founder of the tradition was notoriously um doing a lot of the same things that um his son is now being accused of um and yet the community seemed to have survived and there's actually been some research about why the community survived and how, um, how it did that. Um, but it also seems very, it's, it seems actually rather difficult for me to imagine how that community is going to, um, weather the storm, um, and, and what parts of it will sort of emerge, right? Um, some, Uh something will survive, but it's it's hard for me to see what part of that will, right? And parts of it won't. You know, when the whole board of directors resigns in protest, how does a, a, an organization continue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on a, just on a practical matter. Um, so, so that's sort of the, the destabilization I'm talking about, right? Um, there will be something of that community that, that persists into the future, I'm sure, because it's large enough. Um, the, uh, an organization gets big enough, it's hard to um, – to, to bring it down, right? <laughs> um, something persists. Um, but it's hard to know what exactly that will be. If the entire culture or the environment in some way becomes destabilized to the point where, um, you know, Buddhists aren't able to get funding, for example, um, how will they be able to um, persist? If um, parts of the Buddhist world are underwater, literally, how are they going to persist? Mm-hmm. How are they going to respond to those changes, right? Um, it becomes a, it's, uh, uh, it's a real question. It's a real question. Yeah. 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 And it demands a different kind of contemplation about the present and the future, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, and I don't think that, that, yeah. And I don't think a lot of people who are doing, you know, sort of public Buddhist discourse, um, are really prepared to think about that because so much of that discourse, I think, as we sort of alluded to, has been rooted in the the doctrine of the philosophy or the teachings. Um, you know, we're we're interpreting the teachings, right? Is what we said earlier, mm-hmm. um, and we're not talking about the way in which Buddhism is a, a social organization. We're not we're not sort of trained to think about the way in which we're embedded within larger cultural forces, right? We're not, mm-hmm. you know, I tell people, you know. I, I talked to I talked to people about the board of directors stepping down from an organization, and people are like, "Oh, there's a board of directors. Of of course, there's a board of directors. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nonprofit organization. It has to have a board of directors." Um, you know, or I say, "How is our Buddhists going to get funding?" And people are like, "Buddhists need money. Of course, they need money. You know, they they have electricity bills just like the rest of us." <laughs> Strangely enough. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? So there's this, yeah. this way in which we sort of disconnected our understanding of Buddhism from the real world that we're not prepared to think about the way the real world affects Buddhism, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, it requires a much different kind of, of contemplation, a different kind of thinking uh, about what it means to be Buddhist and how we're going to be Buddhist in the future um, if, you know, if the worst happens, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very sh- sunny, shiny note to finish on, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you know we're, we're trying yeah, out yeah. some new things here in america being terribly terribly <laughs> pessimistic <laughs> well good luck yeah good luck yeah we europeans are very familiar with pessimism. <laughs> and you know we've always been suspicious of your excessive optimism <laughs> And, and you see now why, right? Right, yeah. Well, you know... I, you, you got Trump as a result of it. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Well, I got, you know, another part about being a historian is you see, like, oh, this is this is actually normal. Yeah, right, yeah. Things have sort of always been like this. We've just been denying it. Yeah, like every empire, right? Always believes it's special. Mm-hmm, America yeah. was no different. Yeah, China will not be different either. Right. Jesus, there we are. Okay, well, look, Scott, it's... Um, it's been good talking to you, and uh, I've enjoyed our conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your non-expertise at the same time. It was great. <laughs> great. <laughs> and um, just a final note, where can listeners get in touch with, uh, well, follow your work, basically? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Do you have a, a public media personality or uh, yeah, location I, or site? I am on Twitter. I tweet uh very infrequently but uh dj buddha is my handle on uh, twitter um i have a also an infrequent blog of djbuddha.org um those are the best places to to find me um uh and now that now that i'm making this public declaration i will endeavor to be more to more to be more active (laughs) (laughs) great well i'll follow that for sure so have a great day scott and uh All the best, and uh, thanks for coming on to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. Thank you.